You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Chief John LaBarbera. He is an executive board member with the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, where he served for 13 years as a member with the Siller family and Sal Cassano, the former commissioner of the New York Fire Department. He's also served in the Marine Corps for two and a half years, followed by 39 years of service with New York's Fire Department, one of New York's finest and finest in the country. Chief LaBarbera, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. Laura. Really appreciate it. It is my honor, honestly, to thank you for your military service, for your service as a first responder, and now, of course, for your service with the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We're going to have you share a little bit of that with us in a moment. But first, we just shared a whole lot of heavy stats there. Wow, like 40 years in all sorts of really intense situations. Tell us a fun fact about you. The fun fact about me is that I enjoy my off time with my six grandchildren. How old are they? They range from nine to eight to five to three to two to one. And my daughter lives in Colorado Springs and we live in New Jersey. And between both families and both spots, that takes a lot of our time. And it's something that's very, very enjoyable to me. And what do they call you? Papa and Poppy. I love it. What my wife calls me. No, I, I won't ask that. But I'm, it's always curious to know what kind of nicknames children have for their grandparents. They do. And it, they are different. It's just wonderful to having six, one girl and five boys. Is the girl the baby? Is she the oldest? She's the second oldest. She's nine. Blonde hair, blue eyes. She doesn't look any type of Italian, but she's so beautiful. <laughs> that she's gorgeous. Absolutely. And a heart of gold on top of it. So first, give us your elevator pitch. Tell us about the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. What is it? Sure. Being in a, just in a Marriott hotel, somebody sees my hat and what do you guys do? I said, what we do as a foundation, we're a 9-11 foundation that pays off the mortgages of veterans that were killed in the line of duty. We pay off mortgages of first responders killed in the line of duty, police officers, firefighters, and EMTs. And we build smart homes for catastrophically injured service members. This year, three months ago, we opened up a village in Land Lakes, Florida, where we're building 96 homes to put our smart home recipients, our veterans, and our first responders so they can live and grow in the community. That's amazing. So really taking care of the families, first and foremost, of those left behind who were killed in the line of duty, whether as first responders or in the military. And now it sounds like also working with the veterans who were, as you say, catastrophically injured. So loss of arms or loss of... That's right. Um, Burn injuries, amputations, powerless, smart homes tailored to each individual's need. What is a smart home? What does that mean, a smart home? Great question. A smart home is a home where it's tailored to a veteran in a wheelchair. Even a home does not have the aisle space that a veteran in a wheelchair. A veteran that has three amputations is in a wheelchair. 
He needs water aisles. He needs a special bathroom. He needs a special shower. He needs a special commode. He needs a cabinet, a cabinet that you touch and the inside comes down where he can get a cup of coffee mm. and a stove that comes up and down so they can live their lives just like you and I. Wow. I can only imagine. I mean, I'm short enough as it is without a wheelchair, but in a wheelchair, having to get around and just you, having you access. Yeah. Let alone an apartment, but even in a home. And yes. we build every home tailored to each individual's needs. What a beautiful service. What an incredibly beautiful Thank service. You. Thank you. Considering what these people, men and women, have sacrificed for the rest of us. Look, there's one thing I am extremely conscious of, which is that I only get to do what I do every day with the ease that I do it because you and those first responders and military service people are out there doing what they do to allow us the freedom and the safety to do that. So please pass along to all of your people. Thanks from all of us and our listeners. There's no better feeling than to make a difference in someone's lives. I encourage each, every one of you out there to lend a hand. And hopefully we're doing that through this podcast and we're going to add to the lives of the listeners, some insights and some touch some hearts, touch some lives, and also maybe inspiring some people to check out the Tunnel to Towers Foundation's website. Why don't we throw that up? Usually I give people at the end a chance to listen, but we're going to put it right at the beginning. What's the website for Tunnel to Towers? Sure. T, the number two, T.org. T, the number two, T.org. Very simple. Very simple. I love it. That's one I, even I can remember. T, two, T. Dot org. So, they made it for me. <laughs> sounds like for me too. And you know, this is an organization that was born out of 9-11. And that is a topic that is very personal to me as well. A lot of people don't know. Normally I wear something a little bit more formal for the interviews. Those of you who are listening um, aren't looking at us visually, but I've got my 20th anniversary of 9-11 shirt on. My cousin Matthew Horning was killed in the towers, as was a friend of mine from high school, Chris Ingracius. I've got my 9-11 never forget shirt. And it is something that is obviously very personal for my family as well, knowing how many uh, of your people died trying to save my family and friends. 2,977 lives were lost that day across the country. It's amazing. Amazing. Now, this is an odd question to segue into, given what we've just started talking about. But John, why do you do this? What's your favorite part of your job? I do it very simply as a volunteer. It makes me feel great. There's no better feeling than to give back. I get to travel the country and telling the folks what Tunnel to Towers is doing, where their money's going, and where it's going to. I deal with sponsors from General Motors to Home Depot, and I deal with individual folks who make small contributions, large contributions. And I get in front of folks and I talk about what we do as a foundation. And I just love getting out there across this great country, meeting people and telling them what Tunnel to Towers is doing. Yes, spreading the word. And in doing this work, in this ministry, as I'm going to take the liberty of calling it, what's one of the big issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? One of those key issues that we just brought out about three, four months ago was attacking and eradicating veterans' homelessness. You could go across any great city or as you watch TV and you see these poor, helpless people living outside with no roof, with no food, and living on their own. And Tunnel to Towers Foundation has pledged to raise money to eradicate veterans' homelessness. We feel that the folks that are out there 
especially veterans, probably about 25 to 30% of the folks that you see in the warm weather climates, especially even in New York, are veterans. But I want to make sure that we don't skimp over that. So when we're talking about all the homeless people that you see, especially in big cities, but I'm sure elsewhere, 25 to 30% of all homeless people across the U.S. are veterans? That's an approximate figure. That's correct. At least that. And we get numbers from the VA and we get concentration of states on where they are. Warm weather climates, Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, California, and we go in and we're in a process of raising money and we go in and we buy old hotels, we fix them up and we give them a decent house and home to live in. But what's most important, Dr. Laura, is the social service that we give them. Yes. Mental health, alcoholism, all the other things that they need to get back into society and be productive in life. And if they can't make it back out into society, they could stay in one of these homes and live as long as they want to. So if they've been identified and they're invited to live in one of these refurbished hotels that is now, I believe you used the word dormitory of sorts, that sort of communal living, they not only would receive the housing opportunity, but they would also get the social services along with it. Which is critical. As critical as the homes, as the rooms we're providing them. It's going to be brand new facilities that our first ones are going to come online very shortly in Phoenix, Arizona. I was out there a few times and there's a bunch of veterans living out there and they're in a facility that is not the best, but they are housed, but they're going to be moving into a brand new facility. It's up to each and every one of us to do something about this. These are the folks that keep us free 24-7, just like firefighters and police officers. And Frank Silla and Mary Silla made a commitment that we are going to attack this and we're going to get rid of it. And we're going to put these folks in a place where they can live in dignity and respect. Yes, which is at the very least what they and everyone, for that matter, deserves. That's right. Not just yes. the veterans. All homeless has to be taken care of. If you had to put your finger on what is the most common misconception that people have either about veterans or affairs in one way, shape, or form. What's the biggest misconception you frequently hear? As a veteran myself, I was not in combat. I just missed Vietnam. But they think they're taken care of at the VA. And I'm not disparaging the VA, but we have a difference of opinion on that, especially with the homelessness and some of the care that they get. We feel that it, it could be better. I know there's a lot of great folks in the VA, but people think that they are being taken care of, and a lot of them are. And then what happens with this population? The catastrophically injured service members, triple amputees, quadruple amputees, soldiers that are blind, burnt, they need special housing. And what about the folks who, the life insurance, it's not great. I think it's maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars. What does Jeannie Taylor with seven kids do with $200,000? Not much if it's that much. And it just got raised a couple of years ago. So we have a different philosophy at the Tunnel to Towers Foundation that we're going to do it on our own with the help of the American public. But the misconception is they're good. They're getting taken care of at the VA and with the homelessness. They don't want help and they're out there. And that's just totally not true. They want help. And it's yes. up to us to give it to them. 
Of course. And it sounds like you're doing an amazing job of spearheading that. Who do you think is the toughest audience that you personally ever had to get through to on one of these messages? Some of the speaking engagements that I do, some of the folks that are skeptical, like I just went over, that they think everything is taken care of at the VA, which it's not. When I go around the country and I make speeches, you know, there are times when the audiences are, there's a challenge for whatever reason. I might not have the full attention. And there are times when I left the podium and walked right over to a table just to ask them to give me a couple of minutes so I could tell them about our foundation and the wonderful work that we're doing and that we need their help. Let me get this straight. I'm imagining you're in some sort of, I don't know if it's a ballroom at a hotel or something, you're at a convention or you're speaking to a group. There's a particular table that's just thinking, okay, you're the background music that you're just sort of there as filler and they're just yapping away and chatting with each other and not really paying attention. You've actually come down off the stage and like walked right over to their table and stood right in front of them and said, could I have a couple of your minutes, please, to share with you about this foundation? Is that correct? Yes. I give you super credit for having the directness. It's as simple as the sound system. That is not professional and they can't hear you of the conversation. And then it could be too late in the night when, you know, folks are having a good time, having a couple of drinks. So I've done that on a few occasions, left the podium and walked out. And they were very, very respectful. I was able to have them quiet down. And I told them, it's just going to be a couple of minutes to tell you what I need to tell you. But I think you're going to want to hear it. So that's some of the things, some of the challenges you might have on certain occasions. But most times, the folks are wonderful. I want to acknowledge what I just heard in case anybody else out there didn't catch it as it sort of went past. But even when faced with some sort of conflict, some sort of uncomfortable scenario there, you've got a group of people in an audience who are chatting. Somebody could take it really personally, walk down off the stage, walk up to them and say, hey, you guys, you're being disrespectful. You need to listen to me. Who do you think you are? All that kind of stuff. And rather than confront them with a challenge of sorts that you requested their attention for a few minutes and you framed it as being in service of them. I really think you're going to want to hear this and that they've turned around at that point and acknowledged and then given you the response you wanted, which was their semi-silent, mostly attentive behavior at that point. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Listen, it's crucial. Don't be confrontational. Whether it's a sound or you come on late at night, at an event, don't be confrontational. You go over there being very, very respectful. You'll get the respect back. But I'm not encouraging anybody to, to do that. You know, I've done it. I've watched our chairman, Frank Silla, on a number of occasions quiet a crowd down. And I've watched Frank quiet two, 3,000 people down. Just sitting back and learning from a pro has been invaluable to me. But I think let's go back to do not be confrontational to speak to them like you want to be spoken to. So I want to put a qualification on that because I think somebody might say, you say don't be confrontational. You just got down off a podium and walked right up to their faces and stood up in front of them in front of the whole audience and called them out and did whatever else. How is that not confrontational? Well, A, you're a New Yorker. So people's, (laughs) and I'm a Jersey Italian. So perhaps our threshold for what we view as confrontational may be a little bit different. But more importantly, I'm being a little semi-facetious on that one, It's not avoiding the confrontation. You're being direct, but being non-combative in the process of addressing the 
issue at hand, be it one of conflict or not conflict. But I think people would tend to assume you go one direction or the other that, well, either I can address the problem and thus engage in conflict and have it be A against B, or I just turn a blind eye, pretend it's not happening and just suck it up. And I think you just did a beautiful job of demonstrating where no, actually neither of those is desirable or effective for that matter. We do confront head on in those situations, but gently, clearly, directly, respectfully, with a clear ask and a clear instruction point of sorts. And it works out perfectly in that scenario. It has worked out very well for you every time. Yes. Yes. And you don't have to walk directly to the table. The table's in question. Walk to the area, talk to them, and also talk to other tables. But in that area, I travel a long way to convey a message. And again, the most important point that you and I just mentioned is there's a way to do it, but do not be confrontational about it. Right. I'm going to, for anybody out there who's still stuck on the confrontational word, I'm going to say, don't be combative about it, even when more or less directly addressing it. But that's also a great tip. Notice everybody out there, the use of proxemics, which is space and how close you are to somebody else. So you can walk towards them, sort of give them the hint, oh, she's coming this way, he's coming this way, make eye contact with some of them and others. So it's not necessarily just homing in on that particular table and staring them down and to just start to drop hints, get a little closer, little by little body language term one way or another. So it's kind of implicit, but they sense it may be coming. So perhaps they want to dial it back before you get there. So it's hint dropping, but the use of proxemics in body language by just playing with distance is another super tip. So thank you for sharing that. That's critical. I'm glad you said that. I'm not sure what the word was, but proxemics. Space is critical. That's a great point. Yep. So proxemics is like the proximity. You're in the proximity of somebody else. So same route. Way ahead of the game today. Do not get close. That's such a great point. Perfect. And this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So John, this is your opportunity to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I tell each and every one of you out there, if you're listening, go to T, the number two, T.org, and learn about our foundation to help us do our mission and help us do good and help us with all of our initiatives and tell your friends, their families, their friends, and spread the word. That's how Tunnel to Towers funds all our initiatives. So our influence challenge is a PSA today. Please check out Tunnel to Towers. T, the number two, T.org. Go there, learn about us. You're going to love everything we're doing. And like I said, 95.1 cents on the dollar goes to the programs. Which is an amazing statistic by anybody's standards. There's your call to action. Check out T2T.org to not only have an influence on yourself, because as John mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show, the best part of his job is knowing that you're doing good, that you're making a difference for others. And that's quite the gift to share for yourself, as well as knowing that you're going to have a huge influence on the lives of first responders, of military veterans and their families. So thank you for that opportunity today, John. Thank you. All right. Mistakes. We've all made them, much as we don't necessarily like to admit them, part of the human experience. 
What's a communications-related mistake that you've made? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? We don't have enough time for me to go over the mistakes. <laughs> I'd like to go over. But you know, one of the mistakes, the firefighting, it's life and death situations. Myself as a young lieutenant, not training my company in, in the basics of firefighting, which they know by me not training as much as I should have. As something as a house fire fully involved with people inside, very, very dynamic situation. And a hose line coming into a home that's going to extinguish the fire. And four fire companies are in there making searches in a dynamic situation, smoke and flame. One of our firefighters ventilated one of the windows before we had water in the hose line, which caused the two-story building to get become fully involved. Thank God. Everybody was able to get out, the civilians, the firefighters were able to bail out of all the windows at all. And that was something that I neglected in telling the team something very simple that I assumed that they knew, but something that you do have to go over simple things and get the feedback is that a hose line going into a, a home that's on fire has to have water in it. And the mm -hmm. communication with the member breaking those windows. He has to communicate that to everybody involved. And if he did that, we would have told that young firefighter to hold off, breaking the windows, ventilating it, giving the oxygen to that fire, causing that home to be fully involved with that communication that wasn't evident. But we would have told that young firefighter to hold off, not ventilating those windows. And when we spoke later in the after action summary that he assumed by seeing the hose line in that building, that there was water on the fire. And that's not what happened. And that was a shortcoming on my part, but not training and talking to the firefighters, especially the young firefighters. So don't assume anything. Or everything that's large, small, everything matters. And, and life-saving business training is the key. So if I'm hearing this correctly, I'm going to feed back what I'm hearing and tell me if I missed anything or got any wires crossed along the way. So the huge raging fire in this house and one of the teams had brought the hose in, but they had not as of yet turned the water on at the source. So the guy whose job it was to break the windows saw the hose in there and just assumed it was good to go, but it wasn't. There was a failure of on his part to check with the team first and make sure, yes, they have water before breaking the window, which then fanned the flames, as it were. It actually lit the home, the first and second floors on fire, where I don't know how many guys had to jump out windows. Very dynamic. I was in a precarious situation myself. But that's something in leadership that I have to take responsibility for, that I have to train the men, that I have to make sure he asks before he ventilates that window, not to assume anything. And how about if I said, hold off on venting? In a leadership role, that's something that's incumbent upon you to make sure that your firefighter is aware of. And it's something, it's continual. And communication is the key with not just firefighting, but everything that we do. Of course, of course. No one here is going to argue with you about communication being the most important part. If you are, you're on the wrong show, that's for sure. So the analogy that's coming to mind is where pilots, no matter how many years they've been flying and what kind of jets before taking off, they've got the checklist that they have to go through item by item and physically check off just to make sure no stone is unturned and that all safety procedures have been followed. And sounds like there were a couple of layers worth of missed communication steps on that from 
the training perspective to have the participants that this young guy in particular, but everybody for that matter, go through that mental checklist. And then of course he didn't think to go through the checklist on his own either and confirm some of those key pieces were already in place. If I might add, after action, not just with FDNY or any fire department, even police, what they do is critical to knowing where were you, what were you doing and, and get the feedback. This is after the incident. So a debrief of some sort? That's right. What did you do? You do? You do? Why did you do it? Where were you? Again, it's not just FDNY. It's the police. It's, you know, EMS, EMTs. You know, I think corporate America does the same thing. I mean, we made this deal. And I mean, afterwards, what would we do afterwards? Sure. If that action is critical. Absolutely. Look, follow up one way or another, whether they call it a debrief or a postmortem or something. There's lots of ways to look at it, but you have to look back. Look at the, hey, even professional sports. You got to go back and watch the game tape or game footage, see what happened and where can you learn, where can you tighten it up for the next time around. So it sounds like that's a pretty universally appreciated practice. That's right. Now, what about accountability? What's an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with somebody on your team? And how did it go? It ranges from taking somebody, an officer, generally an officer as a chief officer, you deal with the officers, into an office by themselves, or some situations where you come upon the scene and you see something, and unfortunately, you have to dress down the officer and everybody else that's involved. Just to clarify a term there, so dress down meaning? Tell them that they are not doing their job properly. Dress down to anybody out there who's confused. It's not undress. It's a verbal reprimand of sorts or a verbal correction. Let's just make sure there's no... Let's clear that up. Let's Let's clear that up. That's right. So to address, you'd rather do it where somebody's alone, but there are occasions, for example, when, let's say, and it's happened, fire company is out on fire inspection and they're not properly dressed. And I come upon the scene and they're out in the public representing the New York City Fire Department, and they don't look good. And what does look good mean? I mean, do they need to be in uniform? Well, they're doing inspection of a home or a business, not a home. We don't inspect private homes, but businesses, commercial businesses. But they're there, and they have to also respond to alarms. So they're not in dress uniforms. They're in a what we call a work duty uniform where they could go Put on their gear and respond to an alarm because they're in service. They're ready to go. The equivalent of the first responder version of a business casual outfit. I have a college shirt on. They're in T-shirts. They're allowed to wear shorts. The shorts didn't look well at all. T-shirts had FDNY on them. That didn't look well at all. And I told them all, you're not representing the greatest fire department in the world in the manner that you should be. So let's go back to the firehouse and go get change, and let's go back out and do an inspection and look, and you'll feel better about yourself. And the problem with that is, is that I had at that point, the officer was smirking. Mm. He was, let's say, the, the sickness, the cancer that was in that unit. That unit's discipline was not where it should be. And then you have to take immediate action to do something about it, to remove the sickness from the unit and replace that officer with an officer that is on the ball, that knows what we expect. 
and it affects the whole unit. So you removed this person from duty for a while? Not from duty, to another borough, to another unit until he got his act together. And when he came back, he apologized for what he did, which I fully accepted. And he became a much better lieutenant and then eventually a captain. Nice. So a little opportunity for a second chance. Teaching moment. Correct. Nice. And great modeling for others as well. For both of you, really. So finally, then, if somebody in your organization with the foundation wanted to move up into a senior leadership role, aside from technical expertise, what's one skill they'd have to demonstrate and why? There's a couple of them, we feel. Being a team player and a people person with an infectious attitude that they could move their team. That's critical. And as I said before, it's a give and take with your team. It's not just you and your orders and how you want to do things. You need the feedback. And we watch that with these folks in our organization. And you could tell within a couple of days somebody's personality. Yes. And you can tell that they have leadership capabilities. And I think the most important thing that we look at, which is too difficult, is that they're a lot smarter than we are. Exactly. Leaders know to hire people who are smarter than they are. I certainly hire people who are smarter than I am for all the stuff that I've got people hired for because heaven knows you don't want me doing the accounting. That's okay. critical. That's, that's team a- player. You got, you got to be a team player. You got to be respectful. You got to listen to what people have in mind. That's very easy to say. I think it was Steve Jobs who said, we hire smart people to tell us what to do. There you go. We don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. That's right. One of the best. That's right. Well, with that, John, is there anything else that you'd like everyone to know about the Tunnel to Towers Foundation in the last minute? Sure. Thanks. Ending this conversation on behalf of the Silla Foundation and the family and all our staff and volunteers and board members, thank you for having us. We just initiated our 9-11 Institute where we're coming out with curriculum, home-based curriculum for home-based teachers to teach their families, public schools, private schools, to teach them what happened on that fateful day and just on that day and beyond. From 9-11 forward, to teach them what happened and the heroics that happened on that fateful day, not just in New York City, but in Shanksville and at the Pentagon, all those heroic people, those 2,977 lives that were lost. And it's getting lost in the system and it's not getting taught. And we also have to remember that a lot of folks forget is that firefighters, police officers, and EMTs are dying from 9-11 cancer. And then probably in six months' time, we'll surpass to 343 firefighters that were wow. killed that day. That's so amazing. the Institute, teaching our children to never forget that day and beyond. Never forget. Yes, that never is the forget. motto. People do have short memories. And we feel as a foundation that it should be taught in school. And we hired three wonderful professional writers that write the curriculum. And it's supported by 9-11 firefighters that go out and families who lost loved ones that go out and talk about that faithful day and beyond. Yes. Beautiful. We certainly support that mission. With all of that, I really want to thank you, John, for joining us today, sharing with us all about the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. How can people learn more about you and the foundation? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Again, go to T, the number two, T.org, and you'll see all these wonderful programs that we have and learn all about them and all the folks that we're helping. 
and let us all do good together and join us in our mission. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you once again for sharing your services and allowing us all to do with safety and freedom all the things that we do on a daily basis. I'll pass that along. Thank you very much. It's an honor. And to everybody else out there, thank you for listening and tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.